Before you listen to today's episode, I must say, when you talk to politicians, you tend to talk politics. So today's episode does diverge a little bit from our normal themes. So if you do want to listen to this episode, then go ahead. But if you want to kind of stay away from the more political commentary like we had today from Senator Dennis Linthicum, then you may want to wait till next week. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Cowboy Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Sharp, joined once again by co-host Chad Waldron. Hey, Justin. Good to be back on the air. And today, another pretty big guest, Oregon State Senator Dennis Linthicum. So we had a great conversation on the podcast a couple weeks ago with our state congresswoman, Vicki Breeze Iverson, and we've had a couple other great ones with people like HDRFPA leader Kevin Lehman and our Lake County Commissioner James Williams. And today we have another governmental leader, and that is our Oregon State Senator, Dennis Linthicum. So, Senator Linthicum, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself. You bet. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, I, you and I haven't talked before, so I look forward to this. Um, it'll be a great opportunity to people for people to see who I am and where we can go as the state of Oregon and what things people can um, offer to uh, to help ag and the industry that we have out here in this district. Your listeners may not know, um, District 28 is the Senate district. Vicki Bree-Cypherson is one of the House members, and uh, E. Werner Rischke is the other House member. But the district goes all the way from the east side of Medford through Klamath County, Lake County, up into Deschutes County, and includes all of Crook County as well. So it's the heartland of ag here on the east side of the Cascades. Yeah, which is, that's pretty accurate. So are you originally from Oregon? Uh, no, Diane and I have lived uh, it, uh, halfway between Lakeview and Klamath Falls on Highway 140, um, for about 25 years, and your listeners may also be interested, we have lived off the grid for those 25 years. So although I haven't paid for an electric bill in 25 years, um, running my own little power plant here on the ranch is, uh, is, 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 has its own um, benefits and its own uh, surprises. So uh, we've been here essentially 25 years. Yeah. So well, what brought you to the area then? Uh, we were looking for uh, a more rural lifestyle for our kids. Uh, our children were young, uh, 11 and 12 in that time frame. And we, they, they loved horses. We lived in Orange County and they loved the Orange County fairgrounds and raking the, uh, the horse stalls for a chance to walk around with a pony on a lead and that kind of stuff. We couldn't afford egg or horses or cows or, you know, even a chicken in Southern California. So we started looking for an area that would provide a, enough of a business adventure for me. I've been in software development my, my entire life. I was a senior vice president at a Fortune 500 company in software development and technical management. And we were looking for a population center that would support that end of my um, skill set, as well as introduce my kids to um, 4-H and whatnot and what it's like to own horses and cows and um, be involved in that rural lifestyle. So the rural lifestyle was the big ticket. 
Yeah, so actually, we can talk about software development and that here in a second because that's probably a really interesting topic. But first, um, what is your education background in that realm then? Sure, I have an economics degree from UCLA, and um, and I have a master's degree from Biola University, um, and uh, my my uh, econ degree uh, led me to create a. Um, a, a gnome de plure, you know, my writing name was the dirt road economist. And since I moved out here onto a dirt road off the grid and with um, a couple of hundred acres of uh, cows and horses and uh, agricultural land under my feet, I started writing the dirt road economist because it seems that um, the, the rural economy, the agricultural end of the stick, never gets recognized for what it's worth. Nike and downtown Portland, Intel in the in the manufacturing arena, the high-tech boys in Silicon Valley, they get all the credit, but they can't do anything without timber, without concrete, without the mining operations that find the precious metals and the and the rare earth minerals. They can't do anything without the people that have the skill set and the knowledge and know how to car- harvest these resources from uh, uh, this beautiful world that we live in. We are not going to undo the planet by pulling a, a little bit of oil. 60, 60 um, pounds of oil is better than an entire bank of uh, solar arrays. Um, and I know from experience because I've lived off the grid for 25 years. And and so there's this uh, warped sense of the Green New Deal mentality that says we're destroying the planet with our advanced agriculture. And the truth is uh, farmers and ranchers are the most um, environmentally conscious segments of our culture. The people in the pack and stack in a downtown area of Portland have no idea what it takes to produce the electricity that they squander daily watching CNN news. So um, <laughs> I, I didn't mean to bring you guys to tears, but um, <laughs> but but really, it, you know, th- think about when you walk into a grocery store, not only is there produce at every level and and there's water resources to keep the lettuce and the carrots moist and wet and the celery sticks aren't drying out on the aisle but there there are potatoes and apples and oranges and strawberries and blueberries and nearly at every time of year we have avocados on the shelf constantly because of our global trade and people walking and complaining and carrying signs about you know what farmers are doing or not doing, they take for granted that the freezer is full of meat or full of fresh butchered meat, if you want, at the meat counter. The freezer is full of already made pot pies that are stuffed with vegetables and chicken and and um, and all of these things that people will buy and love and enjoy, even ice cream. How do you create ice cream without growing cocoa and without milking a cow? And people don't recognize how important the rural economy is to their daily lives and their own prosperity. And so um, every... You know what? You are absolutely right. I have a big poster hanging up in my classroom that that says, we don't need farmers and ag people anymore. We can just go and get our food at Safeway. 
So I understand what you're saying there. Yeah, well, it's a big part of it. So that I w- that was a little side track there. I was writing as the dirt road economist. Uh, I'm, I was a Klamath County commissioner, and now I am a state senator here in District 28. So, so last week we uh, asked our county commissioner, James Williams, why he wanted to run for office. And his comment was, I didn't. I Someone talked me into it. W- what made you run for office to begin with? Yeah, the exact same thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I had been in private enterprise my entire life. I've been in software development, in upper management, and uh, was looking for rural uh, community life some, somewhere in the West. Um, and um, I was teaching a Sunday school class about economics. I labeled the class biblical economics, um, just so we're at church. It ought to sound like it's got something to do with the Bible. And sure enough, it did. The borrower will become the lender's slave. And that was our key verse. And I hammered on that for five or six weeks. And finally, a gentleman within that classroom in Bonanza, Oregon. Most of you know where Bonanza is. That's where my dad grew up. Uh, okay, okay, yeah, the community church there in Bonanza. Um, finally, a guy says, you ought to run for county commissioner. And I looked at him and said, are you crazy? By the way, what's a county commissioner? And I didn't know what a county commissioner was. So um, I wasn't involved in politics to to any extent. I mean, I was familiar. I'm a homeschooling dad. We raised our children and schooled them here at home. And uh, they are now, you know, uh, 35 and 36 and, you know, living in the real world and extremely successful in each of their adventures. Married, I've got six grandkids. One's on the way. Five Five are here running around in the dirt. And um, and somebody said, why don't you run for county commissioner? Uh, and he was persistent. This is a lesson for uh, your classmates and yourself. Persistence pays off. Yes. He came at it again and again and again. Never give up. You're on the right side of the argument. Stick to it. Stay with your facts. Stay with your well-reasoned arguments and go for it. And he finally convinced me I ought to do it. And so... Then I became a master fundraiser. I said to him, if you pay the uh, 25 bucks for my filing fee, I'll be happy to run. And sure enough, he did, and I did, and then here we go. Uh, so, I, I mean, obviously you were convinced to run for county commissioner. So when you did get there, was your focus on agriculture, or was it more towards other things? Uh, it's a, it's quite the learning experience. And the first thing, once, once you get in, it's, it's some of your, uh, classmates or peers are thinking about getting involved in government. It, it will really be an eye opening thing. What we need to do is get back to constitutionally oriented government. Our government is way outside the boundaries. If you think of the constitution as a rule book, it's kind of the basketball court. We paint some lines. We say, this is the key, and we make a rule no more than three seconds in the key. This is out of bounds. This is in bounds, um, et cetera. We make all those rules ahead of time, and we write them down, and then we play by those rules. And what we have today is we've got a rule book, the Constitution, both for the state of Oregon and the United States at the federal level, and everybody's dribbling outside up in the bleachers and, you know, and standing in the key for 30 minutes at a segment. 
And it's like, you guys, you can't do that. That's against the rules. And they look at you like you're from Mars. And so um, what I learned, your, your question, I, I gave that as an introduction to my answer. The first thing I learned is that government is corrupt and way out of bounds, and we need good men and women who are willing to stand and hold fast to the truth and pull it back in line with the rule book and get it back in the boundaries. The first thing I learned is that... Um, you know, find the dirtiest sock in the hamper, the the one that, you know, you've been wearing out in the field all day. They're as dirty as can be. They stink too. Pull that over your head, and now you've got your, your head in the sock of a corrupt government, and you realize this needs to get cleaned up. This needs to get washed. This is no way to live a life. You can't go to bed with this on your head. You've got to do something else. So I moved from the commissioner's office into the state Senate, trying to pursue those goals in those ends, because, you know, quite frankly, it's a mess. And we see that in the political arena today. Um, the, the, world, the whole world is upside down. Violent protests are peaceful. And um, COVID's a killer that nobody has ever seen. Yeah, so. It, it, oh, go ahead. It, well, I, I was just going to say, and just so your listeners know what I mean by that, I mean, you know, c- COVID is is nothing more than a a virulent virus for the elderly that have comorbidities. But quite frankly, for all the young people, all the working age people, all the people under 65, it poses hardly any problem with regard to death or hospitalization, you may get it, may test positive, but you're going to live a happy and healthy life, regardless of what the um, the medical industry is trying to scare you with. Yeah, so actually, we could go off. We've been talking about school closures a little bit and school opening during COVID. So, what's your opinion on that? I, I think schools ought to be open. The 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 population segment that we're addressing with regard to your age group, uh, higher education, uh, high school kids, middle school and grade school, even uh, preschool and daycare, none of those uh, individuals are at risk based on the uh, evidence that we have at hand. Remember, we started the closures because we wanted to flatten the curve. And, and that was nine months ago. It was a 15-day proposed closure to flatten the curve, to keep hospital beds open and available, to keep protective equipment available, to keep ventilators available, to prevent hospitals from being overrun. Across the nation, 10 cities were put up to handle the massive uh, you know, tragedies that were going to befall every community. None of those have ever happened. In fact, uh, back in April, the uh, healthcare industry lost 1.8 million jobs because hospitals were empty, nurses became unemployed, most of them got furloughed on the federal dime. But um, th- this is no way to face an epidemic, un- un- you know, laying off all the employees that have nothing to do because we're sitting around on our hands uh, wondering what's going to happen next. So right now is the time to reopen schools, and your um, your peers and yourself could put a lot of pressure on the governor's office by writing letters and corresponding with um, with your uh, representatives at the county commissioner level 
as well as uh, your representative, myself. We are, however, um, on the super minority side of the fence, and so that's a that's a tough haul. So, we'll so, see how it changes during the November third general election. So, Senator, uh, so how would you respond to the criticisms, uh, specifically with schools, about all the elder bus drivers and cooks and teachers? Because I think that's that's kind of where the I hear the most of the criticism, and the uh, justification for closing down schools. Actually, and that's just a red herring because um, the average age of death across the United States is 82 years. Uh, can either of you tell me what the life expectancy in the United States is? It's either 76 or 77, I think. Yeah, 77 for males, uh, 79 for females. So the average age of death is 82 in the old days, what you and I would have said is, oh, we're so sorry that grandma passed away. We love her. She lived a rich and wonderful life. We enjoyed her. I'm glad she's not suffering anymore. We'll see her on the other side. Praise God she's in heaven today. That's what we would have said. And now what we say is somebody killed her. President Trump killed her. Governor Brown killed her. Somebody, you know, the school system killed her because they let kids in. And then the bus driver came home and he infected great granny who was 85 years old. At 85 years old and 92 years old, it, it may sound like I'm belittling their life, but this is what life is. Life only ends through one door, and that's death's door. And we're afraid to admit that. And I don't understand why we're afraid to admit that. Yeah. So uh, let's talk water a little bit now, since you're basically right in the middle of it in that Klamath Falls, Klamath, Klamath County area. So uh, the Klamath Basin water crisis is actually something that's really important to agriculture, not just here, but I mean, if the precedent sets this place, it could be everywhere. So can you want to kind of walk us through that crisis a little bit? Well, yeah, the, the water crisis is, um, is particularly troubling because it, it, it's turned the water resources into a political football. Um, you know, for example, right here in the Klamath Basin, the Klamath River, um, it, and the removal of the four dams on the Klamath River, three of those happen to actually be in California. One of those is here. And there's this um, story, and I'll use story in quotes, there's a story that somehow blowing those dams will make life better for, uh, make life more prosperous and make life better, not only for mankind, but for fish and fowl and wildlife. And th those are irrigation and dams, correct? Uh, uh, the, all of those, uh, those are actually uh, electric power dams. Oh, so even worse. Yeah, yeah, those are uh, run-of-river run electric power facilities, and, and that actually is the most um, environmentally friendly source of power that we have. It's far better be because it's just run-of-river. You know, it's the natural life cycle of, of the ocean, the rain, the water flow down through river basins and going out to the Pacific Ocean. What we do with the water in the meantime in that kind of natural cycle is um, we use that water in, 
in the coming one from surface water that's run of river, and we also use the water that's in the aquifers with water pumping. Right now, there's a giant uh, catastrophe with regard to surface water being managed by um, OWRD, that's the Oregon Water Resources Department, as though it were connected to the underground aquifer in a, in a meaningful way. And that means if I run a, um, a pump down a 1,000-foot hole and pump water from a, an underground a confined aquifer, somehow I'm going to be damaging the water flow that's on the surface land up in the heart of the Sprague River. And, you know, kind of intuitively, you know, well, that's that's pretty hard stretch because the two are so disconnected and it's a confined aquifer and there's nothing between the top and the bottom but a thousand feet of rock. And yet the claim is that that well will deplete the surface water, so we've got to shut off the well. In the Sprague River Valley, they shut off all wells that were within one mile of the uh, surface water. And in that, that's really, uh, it was 147 wells in the Sprague River and um, it, Valley around, uh, it, 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 you know, around, well, from Sprig River all the way to Klamath, including yeah. the Wood River and the Williamson River. Well, hold on, if I want to the... interject a little bit. So I actually have sure. family in Sprig River who has a ranch, and then I have another little bit of family in, uh, it'd be in Langea Valley, just outside of Bonanza, who has, uh, I think, around two or 300 head of cows. So I, I believe that they've actually been part of that, that have had to turn their wells off. Yeah, yeah. It's affecting and, a and lot it... of people, like more than you'd think. It's affecting a lot of people, and some people um, on both sides, you know, the the um, the Langell Valley area and the Sprig River, uh, you know, Fort Klamath area, all of those areas have all been hit by water can't be utilized for stock water either, not alone, let alone agricultural applications, but it can't be used for stock water. And then the tragedy is we've been focusing on using our water wisely and to use your water wisely. A lot of, um, a lot of wheel lines have been used. It used to be flood irrigation in this area. So wheel lines have been put in, moving to pivots and pressurized to get pivot water pressurized requires electricity. Yeah. And now electric costs are going through the roof because what we're going to blow the dams and then we're not going to have electricity available. California is having blackouts and brownouts, um, you know, it, on a regular basis. And here in Oregon, we're going to force the same thing. And when, when, um, electric prices become too expensive to actually grow crops with, the question is, well, gee, then where does our food come from? And uh, so we have we have pesticide and fertilizer regulations and burdens. We have electrical costs and availability of water burdens. We've got all of these burdens that are being put upon the guy who's out in the field trying to make a living and grow food for his family and the marketplace. And um, everybody seems to be disconnected from how does this actually work? And because they don't understand the economics of it and they don't understand what it means to uh, make a profit and produce a product that people are willing to buy, 
they're just clueless and they snap their fingers and make a policy that's devastating to the man on the street. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a lot of the problem too is that the policy's made from the top and doesn't affect different, you know, different districts or it doesn't affect the certain levels that some people are on and it doesn't go by county or by district, it goes by everything in the state. And I think that's probably one of the craziest hypocrisies there is is that they're taking these dams out because they think it's either going to be better for the environment or better for mankind, like you're saying. But as of right now, except for nuclear, which is pretty taboo, hydroelectric power is the cleanest and most efficient uh, renewable source of energy we have. And if you're going to take that out, that's going to have cascading effects with power. And then it's going to have cascading effects with agriculture, like you're saying, because you're not going to have as much irrigation water, because once again, you're following by these regulations that are put on from the top. Right, right. Yeah, you, you've you've got it nailed. Um, that's exactly what we're going to see. And so, um, and and so, this entire um, the entire shut off of these all these wells that were within one mile of the river didn't have to be that way. In in prior years, it was I think it was five miles out. So um, you know, potentially. They could they could set the level anywhere. They could set the level since it's just arbitrary. It's capricious. It's it's man. Somebody dreamed it up one day. How they came to a mile six thousand five thousand two hundred and eighty sixty feet. You know whatever it is. I forgot how long how many feet. Five thousand two hundred eighty. <laughs> yeah. Thanks you guys for helping me out on a real <laughs> tough one. Um, it, it, my my point is. You know, how did they come up to that number? We had a municipal well in um, in Bly that was five four thousand nine hundred feet away from the river, and they were going to make them move that that extra you know five hundred feet to get it out beyond the the five thousand two hundred. And that's fifteen thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, whatever a stock well costs on the rancher, which is hurting again. Yeah, well, this so they raised money uh, through various agencies and grant. In other words, federal tax dollars. Somebody in Shreveport, Louisiana, their taxes went up to pay the federal government to push money out to fly, and they had to raise two point six million dollars. It's a municipal well, so it's connected to the municipal water supply system. Oh, ouch. It's much different. It's much different than having just a, a a single well running a single pivot or or um, some water line piping. Um, so, um, it, but it was a, a it's a big deal, and nobody accounts for that. Oh, it was a we got it solved. We found a grant. Well, wait a minute. The grant money came from somewhere. Ask that person if they thought that was a good use of their hard earned tax dollars. Yeah, it's it's a tough situation. So, being on in the state senate, uh, what are you doing as of right now to help solve this issue? Well, one of the things that they uh, what they keep trying to do, uh, your listeners probably ought to know that in the state senate, everything is organized to empower the powerful. It's not organized to give voice to the voiceless. It's organized to keep power with the powerful. The Senate has a super minority Republican, super majority Democrat led body. So that's essentially a 60 40 split. If you think of it, uh, three to two 
you know, something like that. Like our committee members are comprised of five uh, senators. Three of those senators are Democrats and two of those senators, senators are Republicans. And um, and the senator, the Democrat senators um, outnumber the Republicans because the municipalities have larger populations and they have more votes. And so we always see this vote problem. It's always three to two every day, every game, every inning, whether it's basketball or soccer or baseball, every single game, we know the score and the score is always three to two. So in those sparsely populated rural counties and areas like this district where we are, the vote is always two compared to three from the metro area where Eugene, Salem, and Portland are. And so when they think they need more water and we could do with less, they just make a rule and say, ta-da, we get more water and you get less. Now, the truth is water doesn't travel through the cascades like that. So it's it's not that simple. But when it comes to economic resources that are available or rules that are put in place, the rules make that equivalency. So what I've been trying to do is protect water users by, um, by uh, constraining Oregon Water Resources Department, OWRD, by the rules that are in the rule book and keeping them within the constitutional and legislative boundaries that already exist uh, it, within current statute. Last year, we had a rule where they were trying to change it so that if, uh, if a senior water rights holder uh, called the water master the water master would be forced to shut off the junior water right holder. Boom, just shut him off. So I could sit here on my telephone and I could call and make a complaint and all the five other junior water right holders below me, because I've got the priority by date within the reach, they would all get shut down. No, no holes, no bans, no anything. Oh, they'll investigate it. But in the three weeks they take to investigate it, your crop in the ground could easily dry up and blow away. And then they say, oh, that was a bad call. Turn his water back on. It's too late. I already ran you out of business. Now that I've run you out of business, I just march over and say, hey, I'd love to buy your place. And you say, well, it isn't worth anything. And I say, I know. And I pay you 10 cents on the dollar and I walk away with your land. How did I accomplish that? I accomplished that by legislative action, abusing due process within the Oregon water rights uh, rules. And so we stopped that. We've stopped it three times now. Is it going to come back in 2021? You know, Lord help us um, if it does. We, we need this November 3rd election big time to go towards a, a decent understanding of traditional values, rules, and regulations that are appropriate for helping us flourish and prosper, not appropriate for denying our right to due process. Do you think there's compromise to be had with your uh, colleagues across the aisle, or is there, are they pretty dead set on what they're doing? Yeah, they're, well... 
you you can answer that for me. Do you think the uh, the Biden gang is uh, dead set and Trump gang is dead set, or can they compromise and come to a good solution between the two of them? Well, I think in today's state of uh, social turmoil and political heatedness, probably not. But um, I don't know. I just wonder, not to go off on a rabbit hole here, but I just wonder – you know, you look at the news and you look at everything and everything just looks so heated and people hate each other. But, I mean, if you listen to podcasts with people in government, like, I mean, just one to throw off the wall, Ted Cruz, he'll tell you that he's pretty friendly with a lot of the people that don't look friendly to him on television. So I just wonder if there's a level of that in the state Senate, too. Yeah, well, yeah, the, you know, there's a, I guess, the the, the Senate is organized and the the strong men within the body have, you know, have their say. And, um, and then, you know, there's, there's all the fringe players where you can make headway. And, and because it's your vote that counts, if you can get enough of those people to be bold enough to stand for compromise where there's, here's a solution, et cetera, then you can get that to work. Um, but, but if they're if they're just frankly adamant about one thing or another thing, for example, um, we ended up and your your peers certainly know this. We ended up uh, denying quorum to the majority party. The Senate rules say you need a quorum to perform business. If you don't have a quorum, you can't perform business. This is cap so and trade we, right, that you're talking about. Yeah, 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 exactly. Cap and trade. Well, there were there were three items, actually. One was cap and trade. One was gun confiscation rules. And the other one was mandatory vaccines. Or Man, that's you like the triple gonna, crown of politics right there. Yeah, it, it, it was. And so we said, it, look, it, we're going to deny quorum. If nobody's willing to compromise on these issues or that issues, you know, your gasoline tax would go up by 48 cents. How about a compromise? How about 28 cents? How about three cents? How about 23 cents? They weren't willing to go for any other number. And so we said, well, we can't hang around and let this become law because the score is three to two, remember, we can't outvote these guys. The score will always be three to two. So we denied quorum, and um, and then and we successfully killed that triple crown of um, you know p- political manhandling. And now we're ready to go back in in 2021 and look for opportunities to compromise, opportunities to make something that might be legitimate. But these issues were completely off the table, um, and you know. As far as I'm concerned, they were illegitimate. They just didn't belong there in the flavors that we were serving up. Yeah. Well, for the well-being of farmers and ranchers and, quite frankly, everybody, because agriculture, like you say, kind of lies at the base of a lot of things, food obviously being the number one of those, um, I hope that you do find compromise in the next year, and um, I hope that if you do get reelected, you can keep fighting for people like the people in my area who – basically our entire industry is agriculture so with that i think that's going to end our podcast massive thank you to senator dennis linthicum for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on cowboy talk we really appreciate it and we would love to have you back in the future you've been listening to the cowboy talk podcast which can be found on apple Podcasts, spotify google podcasts and podbean along with being shared on the north lake ffa facebook page I said it before and I'll say it again. Please share this podcast any way possible, word of mouth, social media, so that we can get new listeners. 
And if you go on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating so that more people can find us without it being shared to them. They can just find it on, um, on the Apple Podcast app. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.